Of all the voices raised during the great COVID debates, one rang out especially loud and true. It was characterised by a coherent and strong sense of the application of logic, an historical long view, and a profound sense of proportionality. That voice belongs to the former Supreme Court Judge Lord Jonathan Sumption, who I'm delighted to say joins me for this podcast. Lord Sumption, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed for coming in. Glad to be here. Let's start, if we can, with Ukraine, not necessarily your area of expertise. But yesterday I was interviewing a guest about it and I found myself referring and defaulting to the the application of Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. And it reminded me as I walked into work this morning and that intersection between the law and current affairs, how actually when it comes to something as profound as going to war, the law matters intensely. Yes, I I'm, I have no expertise uh, on, on this subject and I have no knowledge of it other than what, like you, I read in the newspapers. Um, the problem is that Ukraine is not a member of NATO, so that Article 5 of the NATO Treaty really doesn't help much. Can you give us a, a view as an historian? I mean, we'll come on to, to the question of how we teach history a little later on, I hope. But as an historian, somebody who's written about the Middle Ages extensively, um, can you give us a long view when we, when we look at Ukraine and we know that history is part of the prospectus for war of Vladimir Putin, isn't it? And yes. they're talking about the events a thousand years ago. You're slightly steeped in, in 800 years ago, maybe. Well, um, Ukraine has obviously... Uh, been um, closely associated with Russia for a very long time. Um, and um, uh, in a sense, Russia was founded from uh, Kiev and not the other way around. Um, but that was a thousand years ago, as you quite rightly say. And the events shaping modern Europe have all occurred uh, in the 20th century. And in the 20th century, um, Russia embarked on an experiment from which Ukraine suffered very greatly in the 1920s and 30s mm. with mass starvation and collectivization of farms. There is therefore a, a legacy of bitterness which was reflected in the 1991 referendum uh, to uh, proclaim themselves as an independent state and not just as a, a constituent republic of the USSR, which in any case fell to bits shortly afterwards. Let's talk then about COVID. Um, you wrote last week these words, these words to introduce a piece, I think in the Telegraph. You said lockdown was an extreme, crude and untested experiment embarked upon with the minimum of thought, no advanced planning and no exit route. The original decision was taken in a moment of panic with no consideration of more sensible alternatives and no thought for the appalling collateral consequences. And you have raised your voice, as I said in my introduction, on the, COVID, on the big COVID questions. Few legal brains have joined you, um, but you have brought something to that conversation that I think a lot of people felt was missing, the, the application of the law and your lawyer's mind. Where did it take you? Well, it's not simply the application of the law. The problem about COVID is that the decision what to do about it is not just, it's not a legal question, it's not a scientific question exclusively, it's essentially a political question. It involves weighing uh, 
considerations, completely different considerations against each other. You've got to weigh up the health risks, the educational risks, the economic risks, and the moral case uh, for locking the entire population down in their homes. And no one speciality covers all of those things. That's what politicians are for. Unfortunately, um, the politicians did not distinguish themselves on this. The first problem is that although there had been years of planning for a major pandemic. Nobody uh, imagined uh, that a lockdown was even on the agenda, uh, let alone likely. We know that. We know it in Britain because uh, pandemics have been top of the National Risk Register since it was first published in 2008. Uh, and the general lesson from the pandemic plans that were produced in 2011 and subsequently revised was first of all don't go for coercion rely on people's common sense and public spirit uh, and secondly um, uh, try to ensure that life continues as normally as possible uh, and that will involve uh, taking action to protect the people who are most vulnerable and not population-wide remedies like the ones actually adopted. Now, because of that, uh, there was no advanced planning for anything as drastic as a lockdown. And Britain wasn't alone in that. Um, three weeks before the Italians moved into lockdown, um, the, uh, this is in early February of 2020, uh, the European Centre for Disease Control published the pandemic plans of all 28 countries of the EU as it then was, including the United Kingdom, which was in its transitional phase to the exit route. Uh, and not one of them, not one of them, suggested a lockdown uh, as a sensible measure. So this was a decision taken in panic. The government had enormous difficulty producing a, something that they called a cost-benefit analysis, but was a flimsy piece of ill-researched paper uh, produced six months or so after the first lockdown. They had never done this. And a number of ministers are on record as saying that they were slightly surprised uh, that there was no cost-benefit analysis and in particular no assessment of the disastrous economic consequences. In fact, even if you regard this as a purely a health matter, there were many aspects of public health that were ignored. The impact that this would have on undiagnosed or untreated cancers, which is likely to produce a very high death toll, uh, the impact that it would have on mental health. Uh, for many years now, dementia has been the biggest killer uh, in the UK. Uh, and uh, casualties of dementia are certain to rise dramatically as a result of this. And I have experienced this in my own family, where a lively, intelligent and active member of my family who had incipient and very mild dementia declined to a terrible condition and had to go into a home. And you think that was exacerbated by lockdown? I'm sure it was. Yeah. She had whist drives, she had uh, theatre visits, she had everything that yeah. keeps one's brain moving, and then suddenly there was nothing. There's so much there. Let's just start with this idea, and I think it, on one level it absolutely beggars belief that so many advanced nation-states could not have plans in place for a full lockdown. Is it really beyond the wit of man that there would be some sort of new plague that would force society to close down. And if that being so, why was there not a plan? Why wasn't there a plan? It wasn't planned because it wasn't regarded as a sensible thing to do. It was, it was considered, first of all, that the health risks or, uh, of the kind I've been summarizing uh, were uh, very great. And secondly, that the economic consequences would be catastrophic. 
so that it was assumed by everybody uh, that um, shutting down society was uh, a, a very foolish thing to do. So it wasn't that they were incompetent and not having plans. They were highly competent in correctly identifying what the problems about lockdown were. Well, the problems about lockdown, apart from the obvious ones which I've outlined, are first of all uh, that they do not uh, reduce deaths in the long run. They simply defer them into a later period. That's why there's no real exit route from a lockdown. Uh, secondly, uh, in addition to being, it being impractical to lock people down forever or until whenever there's a vaccine, um, there is the problem uh, that lockdowns can never be total. You need something like a third of the population uh, to carry on basic services, to man shops, to public transport and so on, uh, and indeed the health service. Mm. Uh, so that if you've got about a third of your population that can't be locked down, uh, the, the pathogen is going to spread through the population, whatever you do. And was it just that imperial study that changed all that in the UK, that we suddenly went from herd immunity is, is probably the best way to go to, to the panic stations we had? Well, I don't think it's strictly true that the policy was herd immunity before. The policy, as set out in the UK pandemic plans, uh, was to concentrate the uh, interventions of the state uh, in, in, on the position of the most vulnerable people. And from that point of view, COVID is rather easier to deal with uh, than many other pathogens because uh, it is a selective, um, it's, it's a selective virus. Um, that's, I quite see that, there's, that all groups are equally at risk of getting infected, but all groups are not equally at risk uh, of getting seriously ill. Now, that was something that the government could have turned, have made use of in, in formulating their policy. Uh, they never did that. Instead, they did the opposite. They built their policy and their public messaging on a great lie, which is that everybody was in this together. Everybody was equally at risk. Uh, as a result, they adopted an indiscriminate policy, which was never necessary and never useful. And the better approach would have been targeted. It's, it's what yes. we heard from the Great Barrington Declaration, isn't it? Yes, I mean, the, uh, the Great Barrington Declaration has been much criticised for many things that it didn't say. Uh, it wasn't uh, moving towards herd immunity in the sense in which that is generally used. It wasn't uh, aimed at getting as many people infected as possible so that they would become immune, uh, although that, in the end, is how all viruses come to an end. That it was essentially a call for a more selective approach uh, than governments across Europe had adopted. So we could write, in, in terms of the future, we could write into law, couldn't we, provisions that said, look, our administrators, our rulers must not be obsessed just by the SAGE model. They must take into consideration other factors about mental health, oncology, etc., etc. The problem, even with a legal remedy like that for, for a future pandemic, is that a panic-stricken government of the day, of whatever political hue, could just rewrite it pretty much on a whim. They could if they had enough parliamentary support or wide enough statutory powers. But there's no reason, in my view, why uh, uh, their statutory powers should not be conditional on producing, within a relatively short period of time, uh, a one, a proper assessment of the alternatives, 
and two, a proper cost-benefit analysis, which took into account the other health factors, uh, the educational consequences, the social consequences, and the economic consequences. Now, that would be a tall order if you start from scratch. But the whole point about advanced planning for these things is you don't have to start from scratch. You have a number of scenarios, uh, a, a number of, uh, uh, of basic data which you can slot in to a computerized system and produce um, a, a, a plan um, which takes all of these things into account. Can I go back to, to, to the quotation I read back to you, your words, and, and in particular, I want to focus on that word or the phrase, in a moment of panic. The original decision was taken in a moment of panic. Can I focus on panic? We know what panic smells like and looks like. What brings it into fruition? What brings it to bear? Who's behind it? People like me in the media running around like headless chickens? Is it politicians? Is it something more amorphous than that? What's behind the panic? What's behind it is fear. fear. But who peddles the fear? I don't think the fear needs to be peddled. Uh, people have uh, an altogether unrealistic view about what government can do. Uh, they basically believe that there is no human misfortune that can't be cured with enough intelligence and money. Uh, that is, as we have learnt to our cost, a, a, an expensive illusion. Um, undoubtedly, the media have uh, contributed to the mood of fear. Uh, they have um, uh, concentrated on exceptional cases as if they were the norm. I have to tell you, that's quite normal within the media. I detest yes. it, but yes. it's what happens. Uh, it is what happens. And, you know, some media outlets have been more responsible than others. Uh, some uh, have uh, swallowed the whole of the government messaging. But it's the government messaging that I think is the biggest single factor. We know that this is, was deliberate because on the 22nd of March, the day before the lockdown was announced, uh, there's a very interesting sage memorandum from their behavioural unit, uh, which says we, we've got a problem, which is that some people may think that they belong to a demographic, i.e. to an age group, uh, which isn't really very much at risk. Now, of course, that is what some people thought, and they were not dead, unreasonably. They were dead right. All the figures bear this out, and all the information available at the time bore this out. So they said we must have hard-hitting messaging in order to move them out of their complacency. In other words, to persuade them to act as if the risk was completely different from what it was. Now, the messaging before the 23rd was actually quite reasonable. Um, Chris Whitty's statements, for example, uh, were designed to reassure people that although... They data-led as well. They allowed you to a degree to make your own conclusions. Yes, they were. Th th that's exactly right. They also... Um, and Chris Whitty, in a very well-known um, press conference before the lockdown was announced, tried to persuade people that although this was a serious issue, uh, it affected, uh, a seriously affected, a, a relatively small number of people uh, and that people should keep their heads. Now, that kind of balanced messaging completely disappears uh, after the 23rd. And this is, I think, a very serious issue because the most important thing in any kind of national crisis is that people should trust the government. If the government puts out false messages, um, then uh, sooner or later they're going to be found out. And when that happens, people are going to stop trusting them. Uh, there are a number of other reasons why this particular government has lost the trust of people connected uh, with their own 
observance of the rules or lack of it. Another topic. Another, to another topic, I dare say, but, you know, that is one of many contributors to a loss of confidence in government, which is really very serious. Just in terms of the behavioural sociological input to SAGE, we, we saw people like Susan Mickey, uh, an avowed former, if not still communist, mm -hmm. acting on on SAGE and advising SAGE. Was it a victim of ideological capture, do you think, SAGE? I don't think so, no. I mean, I don't know enough about the, the details, but there's some very distinguished scientists and modelers on SAGE. The problem is they were told what to model uh, and they were only concerned with the health implications. They all accept uh, that there are many other thing, considerations to be taken into account. Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance said that in their evidence to the Technology Committee of the House of Commons at a very early stage. But they then went on to say, but it's not our job. The trouble is, it's got to be somebody's job, because these are very important considerations. For many months, it was nobody's. You said a moment ago, um, something which reminded me of uh, a common refrain from my late wife, who would say, people now expect the state to, to sort out every problem that life throws at them. And as a former student of Keith Joseph, for people who aren't aware who Sir Keith Joseph was, he was to some degree one of the ideological engines behind Thatcherism, close advisor to, to Margaret Thatcher. And you worked for him, I think. I worked for saying, him. I wasn't an ideological soulmate of Keith Joseph's. Okay. I voted Labour at the time. Okay, well, that, but, interesting. But, you know, my point is that Keith Joseph, I think, would recoil from the idea uh, which seems pretty commonplace now, that the, the state is there. Yeah. And, and I'm not talking about the state just acting as a, as a blanket to catch people who fall and have to be caught and propped up and all the rest of it, but to solve every single problem that life throws at us. Yes. Well, this is a, a, an important factor. It's not, an, it's not new. You can see it um, building up uh, from the time when Britain first became a democracy at the end of the 19th century. Um, this is bound to have the effect, and it's had the effect in almost every other democracy in the world. It's bound to have the effect of raising expectations of the state. You then have two world wars in which the state, with public consent, turned itself into a temporary and, I think, necessary despotism in, for the purpose of organizing the resources of the nation so as to defeat Germany. And they did that extremely skillfully and well. And these things increased confidence in the state and persuaded a lot of people that there's frankly nothing that the state can't do if it really sets its mind to it and applies sufficient resources so that um, you, every misfortune becomes a, a, a political accusation against the government in power. And governments then react uh, by introducing all sorts of uh, ill-thought-out and hasty laws, uh, sometimes under primary legislation, sometimes under de delegated parliamentary powers. Um, uh, and the whole thing feeds in a sort of cycle of, uh, of, of fear, panic, uh, and false messaging. Uh, this is a classic route uh, uh, to bad decisions, uh, which we have successfully resisted for most of our history but not so successfully in the last two years. The late Roger Scruton, I never really fully understood this, I'm not a lawyer, but the, he felt the English common law would be the great bulwark against what you just described. Can you explain how that might have worked, but doesn't work anymore? Well, Roger Scruton 
had a, a romantic view about English law, which then he was wrong. As somebody, no, no, there's a place for romanticism in life uh, and even in law. Uh, but I think that his, uh, he attributed to the law uh, greater wisdom and greater capacity to uh, sort out difficult and technical problems than it, it really has. Um, the common law has a number of instincts, but they all yield to statutory authority. Um, so that's one reason, the main reason, why you can't rely on the common law for everything. The government has got, and it needs to have, uh, really very extensive powers by statute to do all sorts of extremely drastic things. One reason why we have traditionally given the government these wide powers is we have a degree of confidence in the quality of our institutions and the quality of the in individuals who manage them politically and within the civil service. There were all sorts of things that we assume it were would never would be unthinkable, even if they were technically within the powers of the government. What would an example be? The prime minister. How about lockdowns? Um, I mean, lockdowns, in my view, are not within uh, the power uh, of the government under the Public Health Act, which is the power that they used. Um, uh, but um, uh, although the courts have now held, bowing to the winds, that they are. They're certainly within the powers of other statutes, which the government declined to use because they involved too much parliamentary scrutiny and they weren't too keen on that. Um, uh, so that is a classic example of something that they do have power to do, uh, but there were certain things that were unthinkable. I mean, Professor Ferguson put it very well uh, when he said in a notorious interview with the Times that um, the, uh, we thought China is a, a totalitarian state. We couldn't possibly get away with this here. Uh, and uh, then Italy did it, and we realized that we could. Now, that's almost a direct quotation from what he said. So it's, it, was, it was certainly true that this was unthinkable because it was too brutal. Uh, it was too much contrary to British traditions, which rely on the common sense of people in protecting themselves, provided that they are given sound advice and accurate information, particularly by the state. Uh, then the whole thing was abandoned in a mood of, uh, of, of follow my neighbour. Um, to, 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 to use British traditions to, to, to the advantage of all, requires an understanding of British history. I mentioned earlier that you are an historian of, of, of some repute, four, vol four, four volumes looking at the Hundred Years' War. Five from next year. <laughs> somebody compared it I to... Sir my Stephen plug in. <laughs> you can. Uh, somebody compared it to Sir Stephen Runciman's three volumes about the Crusades, which I read many years ago. Oh, that's that is a very flattering Well, it's very flattering, isn't it? Because Runciman was a very fine historian. And a medievalist yes. like you. Yes. Um, why They're don't not we care, only a medievalist. Why don't we care about the Middle Ages anymore? Well, all human experience is worth studying because humanity doesn't change as much as we think it does. What changes is the technical capacity of mankind to achieve results, but their instincts remain um, exactly the same as I think they always have been. In fact, that is one of humanity's great tragedies. Its technical capacity has increased so much more than its moral sensibility.
Um, the way we teach history, you've described it, described it as appallingly narrow now. I think I know what you mean. I think I've sat through enough parents' evenings where <laughs> we're told it's going to be, it's so going to be the Romans, the Holocaust, civil rights in America, uh, maybe the Tudors, uh, and not much else. That's true. Um, I think there is a big problem about the history syllabus, in particular for GCSE, because although there are a number of options, almost all schools do uh, 1914 to 1945. Now, it's, that's an important period in our history. We were talking a few minutes ago about uh, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, that the 20th century, those 30 years, were the formative period of the 20th century. At the same time, there's a problem about studying nothing else but that. Uh, it's particularly a problem around Germany. We are still bringing up a generation of children uh, to think of the Germans as the people responsible for two world wars and for killing six million Jews and untold numbers uh, of people in the countries that the Nazis invaded. Now, that happened, and it was, it, it was a, a huge world tragedy. Um, but... Uh, I think you get a completely misleading idea of German history and German civilization by taking those 30 years uh, as your classic period. I mean, if you know nothing about German history other than 1914 to 1945, it's not surprising that you have a distinctly negative view of one of the great technically competent and literary nations of Europe with a wonderful culture and history extending back many centuries. John Kampfler wrote a fantastic book last year called Why the Germans Do Things Better. And it, it was quite they a compelling They don't do everything better. <laughs> and yet, we, it, history can move incredibly quickly in the now, can't it? I mean, I was saying to somebody yesterday that the idea that the that German rearmament can happen on a dime that the new German Chancellor can announce in response to what's happening in Ukraine in the last few days, a hundred billion dollars mm. of defense spending. And in a moment, on the moment, end a, a, a 70 year long and plus debate about whether Germany ought to be able to capable, capable of its own defense. Mm. We're living, we're living through one of those times when history and history sort of concertina. But this has a long back quick. history because 2% of, of, uh, uh, of GDP has been the, um, the target for NATO countries for a long time. Actually, very few people meet that target. The Americans meet it more than twice over. Um, uh, and Germany has been under pressure for a very long time to do this and has essentially been free riding on the taxpayers of other countries. As Donald Trump reminded them. Uh, uh, well, it, Donald, that Donald Trump got most things wrong, but that was one thing he may have got right. Um, and, you know, so basically it takes a crisis like this to wake up to the reasons why they should have done this 10 or 20 years ago. Do you, do you worry as much as uh, some do, as I do, about, uh, about the impact of our culture wars? I mean, just to take an example of uh, a university recently putting a trigger warning on a book like 1984, mm. warning students that they may be uh, offended by some of its content or Oliver Twist with its depictions of hunger, malnutrition, racism and bullying. Um, we could all choose extreme examples which prove very little, but they, it, as straws in the wind go, they're quite worrying. There is a narrowing of the human mind, um, and it is worrying. 
um, the I think you've got to start out from the idea that all ideas and all knowledge is provisional until some other information comes to along to supplement or contradict it. And uh, anybody who works uh, or studies in an institution like a university, close to the frontiers of knowledge, has got to get used to the idea that you are not entitled to be safe, intellectually safe. Um, uh, that, that safety is the great word that people use. This is our home. We live in this university, the Durham students said after uh, boycotting Rod Little. We are entitled not to be exposed to unwelcome ideas. Well, now, I've got no particular brief for Rod Little, but it seems to me that the fact that he has unwelcome ideas is a very good reason uh, for listening to them, even if the only consequence is to sharpen the thinking of people who have different and inconsistent ideas. This is what learning and what intellectual development is about. And anything that undermines it narrows the human psyche in a way that I find profoundly depressing. What is most depressing is that it's not just the young who are doing this, who are after all at university because they don't at the moment have a great deal of experience. Uh, it is the staff teaching staff of universities who are either fanning these flames or else uh, refraining uh, from combating them. And that is unforgivable. I wonder whether your tribe, the legal tribe, is as helpful as it could be in this uh, compared to, to my tribe, the journalistic tribe. I mentioned you know, there's Rod Little. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're looking quizzical. There's Rod Little a journalist of some repute. I, I worry one day I'll need to join a march mm -hmm. for Rod Little to keep him out of prison. Mm. Um, people like Rod Little, uh, we have Mark Stein, uh, uh, Anglo-American writer on this news channel, who's faced what he would describe as lawfare down the year, vexatious legal challenges to things he's written before, which have the effect of tying up his hands uh, in legal red tape and just denying him the opportunity to express his case in writing on radio, TV. Um, I just wonder if we can explore this idea of uh, spiking your opponent's guns using the law to silence them. Well, the law isn't a very good instrument for doing that. Certainly the common law isn't. Um, there have been various proposals for um, statutory control of universities, some of which have, have happened. Um, and, uh, but, you know, that is... Well, it's very difficult for the law to police attitudes of mind. I'm not saying that there's no point in trying, and I think that the government's attempts to do this um, have, up to a point, been laudable. Um, but I think that uh, there are strict limits to what any kind of formal regulation can do, and what one is grappling with is an attitude of mind and among both teachers and students. But you can, leaving setting high, higher education aside, you can do things, for instance, around policing to make sure that they do not, there isn't the knock on the door at 3 a.m. because somebody's been, in quotes, guilty of a hate speech crime. Yes, I mean, hate speech is too ill-defined uh, a concept. It's uh, to, I think, for exactly the reasons I've just given, uh, to be something that you can feasibly embody in law. Uh, I mean, there are the, traditionally, uh, English law has taken the view 
that all speech is free except that which uh, provokes a breach of the peace among reasonable people. Um, I think that uh, that criminalizing what is called hate speech uh, ends up by um, simply criminalizing uh, people who disagree with the prevailing consensus. One of the arguments put forward for learning the law is its fantastic training for the mind. <laughs> I, I wonder why uh, we don't, as America does, televise our courts. I think it's a terrific idea. I think it's... We do televise some of them. Well, not least the Supreme Court, of course. But, I mean, that sort of widespread coverage of cases, which isn't universal in America, but is much more common in America, for instance, would be an opportunity to let the public peer in to that, to the way the law works, the way you assemble, assemble proportionately, often something missing from the debate within the media and certainly on social media, uh, you give things their due proportions, you test evidence, uh, or fantastic aptitudes, mental aptitudes, which frankly our society, it feels to me, could do with in spades right now. Yes. I mean, I, I understand the arguments for it and uh, I accept them up to a point, but I think that there are some things which should not be televised. And one of them is evidence, because I think that to... Uh, increase the stress which is involved anyway in, in giving evidence. Being cross-examined is a stressful uh, thing. Uh, is uh, uh, very unfair to witnesses. I also think that there is a danger <coughs> that in high-profile cases the process would turn into uh, <coughs> a media circus and that advocates uh, would start overdoing things, behaving in a way that they wouldn't behave in the absence uh, of television cameras. Now, uh, I I have to say that there were misgivings of that sort expressed uh, at the time when the Supreme Court uh, decided to televise its own hearings, to live stream them, Um, and that those misgivings have turned out to be unjustified. Um, I I know of no example where there's been any playing to the gallery. Can I I suggest one? Mm -hmm. Um, When Lady Hale adopted a spider brooch Hmm. for the announcement on the prorogation in relation to what was happening in Brexit. I think I I wasn't alone in looking at that and thinking that's a little bit of grandstanding. And it was wrong. I don't don't think that it was grandstanding. Um, I mean, uh, she has a number of brooches. I don't think she chose that one because she thought it would get attention. It got attention. It did get attention, but by that time it was too late. I mean, the the most unexpected things cause public attention. On the third day of the hearing in Miller number one, um, my children uh, informed me, I don't follow social media, uh, that my ties were causing a sensation on Twitter. Actually, I took them, I just took the first tie out of the drawer and it turned out to be quite a jazzy tie. It may even have been this one. uh, and it, the it's moment, not always contrived, is what we're saying. It, no. And the moment I saw this, I, I deliberately chose the dullest tie that I could find. Um, <laughs> Which you so, haven't done today. You know, no. Maybe one should, judges should be better at predicting the impact that trivial things have on their reputation. But they're not. You uh, are on record as having been a Remainer, uh, but somebody who, feel that, who felt there was foot dragging uh, when it came to uh, letting the writ of Brexit run. Uh, we're there now, though, aren't we? I mean, it, it's accomplished, it's done, we don't look back. Yes, I mean, I uh, think there's a great deal wrong with the European Union. Um, but it seems to me that one 
uh, can accept that while also accepting that the advantages of membership were outweighed them. Now, it's a value judgment. Many people obviously formed a different value judgment. Uh, that's the view that I would still take. Um, <coughs> but uh, <coughs> um, uh, uh, you're quite right that it has happened. It's not going to unhappen. So we obviously have to make the best of it. How disturbed were you by that Daily Mail front page, enemies of the state, and that idea that enemies judges, of the enemies of the people, yeah. forgive me, uh, that that judges were partial and brought the baggage of their own personal ideology with them? And can I can I put it in frame it in this context? Uh, and it comes back a little bit to Ukraine. Uh, you you represented Roman Abramovich. Mm. Um, reputedly, it was the most lucrative legal case in British legal history. Who knows? I, I don't know about the others. <laughs> um, but there, there, there are people getting upset about the idea of oligarchs being represented now. But surely the law has to represent everybody yeah. regardless, right? Right. I mean, uh, Abramovich was, was sued. So under English law, he had no option if he didn't want a default judgment against him, uh, but to participate. Um, he didn't choose to be sued. I'm sure he would have preferred not to be. Um, so if people are brought before the courts in the UK, um, then it's very difficult to say that they shouldn't be properly represented. So when Bob Seeley, MP, stood up in the House of Commons yesterday and named under parliamentary privilege four lawyers representing uh, Russian interests and said these people should be named and shamed, well, how would you react to that thought? I would need to know more about the circumstances. Um, but if uh, uh, they are being uh, accused uh, of having done something wrong by representing people in properly brought legal proceedings, then it seems to me that that's a perfectly absurd thing to say. You talked about the undermining of confidence in British institutions. Um, it, I would I would suggest that one of the things that's undermined confidence recently, and certainly something that, that 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 fills our inbox more than any other, is the question of migrant crossings. The idea that a government can no longer control who is coming into their to their country and has no idea who they are. Most of them on those boats, uh, there are tragic examples of lives being lost, are, are coming here for a better life, a safer life, a more lucrative life for them and the, for themselves and for their children. But unless we can check, obviously, we don't really know what their purpose is and so a small minority will perhaps wish us harm or at least wishes no no good how can the law be framed given our human rights obligations in such a way that the interest that the, the the confidence of the majority of the british people can be placed in the people we elect to governors in relation to migration and who comes into our country and that basic concept of who becomes british well uh, there it, it, this is a very, very complicated issue. The, the problem about boat people is nothing to do with um, human rights. The problem essentially is that you can control people at a, a land frontier simply by refusing to let them in. And uh, the Human Rights Convention does not prevent people from refusing to let people in. Um, there have been a few rather dodgy cases in the Strasbourg court, uh, which might be taken to suggest that it does do that, but it, it doesn't. Um, the problem really is, if you take the, the channel, uh, halfway across the channel, there is an invisible line. And once people, we can't cross that line to push people away, because we would then be entering into French territory without the consent of the French state. 
uh, uh, once they have crossed the line, they are in our territory uh, and um, they've got there. So uh, that's a problem that arises out of international law uh, and international laws of a kind that have existed for a very, very long time. So it's nothing to do with human rights. There is a problem about human rights. First of all, there are the occasional, this isn't very recent, but there have been the occasional Strasbourg decision, uh, particularly involving Italy, um, uh, where um, a state has been effectively hamstrung in its attempts to keep people out um, on the ground that by keeping them out, you are forcing them to go to places where they will be at risk. Um, but in general, the case law has accepted the right of people to keep people out. The real problem raised by human rights comes at the stage when they are in the country, in let us say the UK, um, where um, it, it is, once they are on your territory, um, there are two major difficulties about getting them out again. One is you've got to find another country prepared to accept them. So that, for example, if, if this arises because they've been convicted of offences, quite often other countries won't particularly want to receive them back, even sometimes if they're their citizens. So that's one problem. The other problem is that uh, under human rights law, we cannot remove them to a country where they would be at risk of persecution. And indeed, uh, it's even been held that we can't remove them to a country which, it, which it itself is perfectly safe, but which might uh, itself remove them uh, to somewhere where they would be persecuted. And, you know, might is a very broad word, uh, so that it is in practical terms very difficult to remove people unless uh, you remove them to the country, a country of which they are citizens, with the consent of that country. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with that caveat applied, I was going to say, with the consent of the country that, that they were, that they... Well, there'd been plenty of cases well, where I mean, citizens... Well, it to Jamaica, you know, the, 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 and what people don't understand, it seems to me, Lord Assumption, is, is the fact it's so last minute. It's like the, the 11th hour. It's a plane with seven, booked for 75, uh, you know, some people with very serious offences uh, who do not have British citizenship. They may have been living in the UK for quite a while, but they were born, let's say, in Jamaica. Mm. And they're, they're booked to go on the Play, and then you get a, a slew of last ditch, last minute legal applications. And that's one of those moments where people scratch their heads and think that the law is not serving our purposes here. Yes. Well, um, I think that it would be possible to say uh, that um, uh, applications for judicial review of deportation decisions must be brought X days before the date appointed or X days after the date on which notice is given. Um, I mean, sometimes people do not wake up to their rights uh, until late. Uh, sometimes um, uh, the deportation itself occurs at very short notice if there's a sudden vacancy on a, on a flight. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I think that one should be careful about uh, not to assume that this is always a tactical device. Sometimes it may be. Uh, but that's not necessarily true. The system is not sufficiently organized for one to be able to draw that conclusion in every case. Understood. A, a, a final thought. I, I want to come back to COVID. And it, it, it seems to me, um, you know, I've, I've spent some years 
moderating TV de- TV news debates on Sky before, where we would lament the fact that there was this great apathy washing over the country and people were politically disengaged and mm. there was a democratic deficit and the technocrats were running things. And, and then along came the Brexit debate, which massively engaged people. Uh, and actually then people worried a little bit that people were too engaged and, and there were, there were sneering tones about the sorts of people who were engaged and, you know, all that low intelligence stuff. And then along comes COVID. And it seems where even people who hitherto weren't that politically engaged are really, really engaged. No, it really matters. It's literally a matter of life and death. Well, it's affected everyone in the and country. And it's affected everyone. And it's so visible. I and mean, if you take something like the mask, the mask wearing debate, um, you have to make a choice. I mean, at least with Brexit, you didn't have to make a choice. Now you have to make a choice. Yes. Uh, and this is engagement. I mean, I'm trying to make the positive case for it, yeah. which is very difficult to do, which is at least we're all engaged in, in the thinking about it. It, it, it. That certainly provokes people to think about it. It doesn't necessarily provoke them to participate in the process. I mean, the, uh, the lack of interest uh, in actually participating has been tracked by countless polls over quite a, a number of years. Look at the of membership years. of political parties. Well, membership of political parties is it's, it's difficult to... Uh, realized that the Conservative Party had a membership of more than Two three million, million yeah. uh, at, the 1950s. at its height in the 1950s. I mean, there are quite complicated reasons behind this. One is that political parties used to be about a good deal more than politics. They were social groups. The local well. club had snooker tables. Well, exactly. And the, the Labour parties, uh, Labour, Labour clubs had... I don't know about whether they had snooker tables, but they certainly had plenty going on. Dartboards. They had nothing to do um, uh, with, with politics, as well as quite a lot that did. Um, I think that there's been a very radical change since the early 1950s in our social habits. We, we entertain ourselves at home, or we are entertained at home, by uh, television studios like yours. Um, and uh, people do not... There's a whole dimension of sociability which has come to an end um, and um, uh, you know the weather except for perhaps three months of the year uh, is not good enough in Britain uh, for to have the the best available substitute which you will get in much of southern Europe of simply uh, going out to out-of-doors cafes playing bulls or whatever uh, so it's not know, about the weather, is then, it? Then, it's, but, not, it's not about the weather. I mean, I know, I know what you're driving at, but it's yeah. not about the weather. I mean, there's something much more profound that's happening. Football is, is the big exception. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, where people, okay, people will go to a pub and watch the football. They'll go to the ground and watch the football exactly. if they can afford people, to. People do, people do not want to watch football alone. They like to be at the stadium or sitting in a pub with 50 other raucous individuals. And that's great. It's easy, you know, middle-aged men, men of a certain age, women of a certain age, the, he- the world is going to hell in a handcart. Um, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I like the idea of romantic optimism. So let's keep that going if we can. Well, I leave the romantic out of it and I would call myself an optimist. What makes you optimistic? Um, ultimately, I think that uh, people always sort themselves out um, and people acquire a sense of proportion. The problem is it can take a very long time. Uh, Public mentalities change very slowly. And I think it will take us a long time to get out of the mentality that made it so easy for the government to impose lockdowns, for example. But it does happen in the end. People don't like living under 
uh, a despotic state. Uh, they may accept it for short periods. Uh, at the moment, they may be in a mood to accept it for long periods, but uh, the taste of it stinks and they, they stop eventually. Lord Sumption, we appreciate your time. Thanks very much indeed.